Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Thank you to everyone who has been a supporter of this show. If you would like to become a supporter, please go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and subscribe for any amount you can. You can now get cool goodies and tote bags and stickers and fun things for certain donations. And also, I have weekly check-ins and special little talks that I provide for people who are Patreon subscribers. So go to patreon.com slash indoctrination and be able to enjoy those benefits and be able to help the show stay on the air. And to my subscribers who give $10 or more a month, I want to do a special shout out for you. Thank you to Sophie, Sarah, Ellen, Catherine, Marlene, Jamila, Joseph, Catherine, Kikesi, Ilza, Lynn, Julia, Trimian, Sheila, Holly, Tammy, David, Apostababe, Donna, Jessica, Mislav, Michael, Zofia, Kathy, Audrey, Alex, Ken, Katrina, Sarah, Christina, Ludwig, Scott, Peter and Cynthia, Linda, Jolie, Paul and Paula, Camus, Lillian, and Maureen. Thank you so much. So, for anyone who gives $10 or more, you get to have your name said by us on the show. For giving $10 or more, you really help to sustain this show. And we know that you're not doing it just so your name is mentioned. But we wanted to make sure to at least offer that to you to say thank you. Today on the show, we have special guests who are going to be talking about their experiences in an offshoot group of AA. The intention of the show is not to say that all 12-step programs are bad or that AA is bad, but again, like other shows I've done about it and other groups, there can be the potential that it goes rogue and you need to know what to watch out for so that you can keep yourself safe while you're searching to make your life better and gain control over it. And so this is just another cautionary tale. And again, it's not to say that it's all bad. I do think though, and I've said this before, there are not enough safeguards in place to keep these sorts of things from happening at times. And so today, we have Rachel and Aaron Alder we're going to be talking to us about their experiences in this offshoot group. They're actually going to be speaking with us three times. We were first going to be having it be a two-episode show, but at the end of recording the second episode, there was so much left to talk about and kind of tying up loose ends and finishing up the story 
and bringing it up to the present time. So you're going to be treated to three episodes by Rachel and Aaron. When I asked them for an introduction that I could record for them, I got something lovely that was written by Rachel on behalf of both Rachel and Aaron. And here it is. My name is Rachel Alder, and I am a mom, a wife to Aaron Alder, a sister, and a daughter. I work providing case management services to older adults in the community, and my wife works in marketing technology. I am originally from Nashville, Tennessee, and have lived in the Seattle area since 2010. My wife has lived in this area for over 20 years. And since I was young, I've always felt a passion inside me to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. From 2012 to 2019, shortly after Aaron and I met, we found ourselves in a situation within AA where our vulnerabilities were being used to control our behavior. I think that's really well said. I didn't think that could be something that would happen to me. I am educated. I have a degree in psychology, strong family support system. I've lived all over the country and experienced many different situations and people. It never occurred to me that this could or would be something I could fall victim to. But nevertheless, I did. And Aaron did. And we stayed in it for seven very long years. So we are recording these episodes to ensure that others that may come across this podcast know that this can and does happen to anyone, and there should not be shame around it, and that there is another way to live that doesn't involve being controlled by one or two human beings or even an organization. Personally, my biggest vulnerability that was exploited was undiagnosed mental illness, specifically obsessive-compulsive disorder. This disorder created near-constant thoughts inside me that I would cause harm to the people I loved and the people I cared about and the people I cared about the most. It tortured me for 12 of 13 years of my sobriety, and Aaron's biggest vulnerability became whether leaving this group or leaving these people meant leaving our marriage. When we left the group and the sponsor you will hear about on this podcast, and eventually for us, AA, our marriage began to truly take shape. I also was finally able to get the treatment that I needed. This help has literally changed my entire life. For people who have been in AA a long time and or are still attending, this isn't meant to be an attack on AA. It's our personal experience, and many others have had similar experiences. If AA is working well for you, wonderful. And if it's not, then there are other ways to move forward in life. AA says this as well. Thanks for listening to our story. Here are Aaron and Rachel now. I 
I want to welcome two very special guests to the show who will introduce themselves. They have a story to share that is so vitally important. This happens to more people than people realize. And a lot of people are too afraid to come forward. And so I appreciate the courage it takes to come forward with the story. And also part of what I hope we talk about today is that it shouldn't have to take courage. It should be that you should feel safe sharing these stories and free and clear to share your story without worry. But there's something about these situations that can create that kind of worry, which is wrong. So let's get started. If you want to just introduce yourselves and then we'll start talking about kind of what led you up to this moment and what's happening right now. So take it away, Rachel, you want to start? Sure. I'm Rachel Alder and live in Bellevue, Washington. And I'm Erin Alder and I'm also in Bellevue. Yeah, we're married. <laughs> nice. Nice. How long have you been married? Since August of 2014. So seven years, coming up on seven years. And then what do each of you do? I do case management for a government entity and work with older adults in the community. And I'm a marketing executive in the real estate industry. Good. Okay. So I'm curious how both of you met each other, which I know is part of the story. So maybe uh, what we could do is, is start with how you met and then talk a little bit about the scenario, what that space was like that you met in. So go for it. Whoever wants to pick it up. Just a little bit of context as I moved to Washington from uh, the Tennessee area. I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous since September of 2007. Um, that's when I got sober in Tennessee. And when I moved out here, I continued to, to go to AA. I met Aaron after a few different life events unfolded while I lived out here. And I kind of hopped around to different AA meetings, but I had always been very dedicated in terms of my sobriety. I was a daily meeting goer, had a sponsor, sponsored, worked the steps, did everything that I was supposed to do. But I also found that I was struggling to really get relief from the AA program. I got it initially, and then it kind of plateaued, should we say, but I was still very committed to it. And so Aaron and I met online, actually, and uh, went on our first date. Uh, the rest is, is truly history. I mean, we really haven't been apart uh, much since then. And that was nine years ago. Well, we met uh, nine years ago in May this year. And I was heavily involved in AA, but kind of had been hopping around just trying to find something that really fit for me and got hooked up with a new sponsor. Aaron and I were new in our relationship. And then I found out that Aaron could join. And I thought this was like this amazing, enlightening way to work the steps. And, and so I uh, asked Aaron if she wanted to join. I told her a little bit about it. And that she had to call my sponsor and go through this, what we now know is like this indoctrination period, you know, process uh, to start working the steps. And just to give a little like flavor is the mental pain that I was suffering that brought me to the point of wanting to do something of this kind of level of discipline and caliber. Um, I know now is. 
um, because I, I had a mental health disorder that was going undiagnosed. And um, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. I've been diagnosed with that and now um, successfully gone through through treatment for that with both medicate a combination of medication and exposure response prevention therapy. And so I just had all these bad thoughts in my head that I couldn't get to stop. And so I, I, when I heard someone could help me stop those, if I followed these very specific rules, I was going to do it at all costs because I, I was terrified not to. So, you know, when people have OCD or, or really also people who have been raised uh, to have kind of integrity, right? That they keep to their word, they stick with what they have signed up for. What can sometimes get lost is if you are adhering to something that is right for you and healthy for you, or if it seems like the focus is just that you need to adhere to something. Um, but being able to evaluate if you're giving your devotion and applying your kind of obsessive thinking to something that is the right thing for you, that that can sometimes mm, be less of the focus. And, you know, as, as things evolve and time passes, that's when you start to evaluate that part of it. So, okay. So you threw yourself in and, you know, Aaron, I want to hear about your experience. And, and before we get to that, Rachel, what was your impression at first thinking back on that sponsor? So one of the hook lines that really got me is that I did not have to believe my mind. And so there was this, this really strong idea of you don't, uh, don't believe your mind. What was the exact phrasing? It's something along that. Like you, there's don't a, believe your thoughts and feelings. don't believe your thoughts and feelings. Uh, don't believe your mind. Be open to things, you know. And it all sounded really good. And that sounded especially good because of my OCD. I have something in particular called harm OCD. And so the thoughts that were in my head were not good. And I knew that they weren't who I was, but I didn't know how to stop them. And they first showed up about a year after I got sober. And so I've been dealing with them for a long time at that point, probably close to six years. And so that is what got me in. And I would say that's the biggest thing. Cause I was like, oh my God, like if I cannot believe this, then, then I can get well and I can get on with my life. And what about the personality of the sponsor? Oh man, very charismatic. I mean, she's just very, she has a way of seeing what I now know as seeing my vulnerabilities, but what I then thought as like seeing my heart. As I worked with her over the years and specifically there was a situation that happened where I realized like, this is like classic manipulation and taking advantage of a person that is hurting really, really bad and really desperate for something to make the pain stop. And she would always say, people come to me because I'm the last house on the block. I'm the last house on the block. And she was. Uh, some of the most desperate people came to her, which means she was able to mold them. Those were her words she used with me when trying to get me to mold someone in order to have them follow her plan for their their life, but her life, it's really hard to tell once you get involved. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Right. It is. And then one other question about molding. 
I mean, now in retrospect, it's a problematic word. And I think even at the time, that was a problematic word, but you might not have kind of had your antenna up for it because it probably felt nice thinking that someone could do that, especially if you trust the person, that then they're going to mold you into the shape you want to be. I mean, just thinking about it, yeah, I mean, can you imagine just with the work that you do or even talking to anyone, if you say, I can mold you, you know, just you wouldn't be able to have those words come out of your mouth because you think, you know, that's an egregious, you know, overstep and a sense of self-importance and um, a supposition that the other person needs to be molded in, in my image, you know, it's very godlike. All right. So then... Aaron, I'm curious. So you got involved and what was your impression? Well, I'm going to back up a little bit to um, when after Rachel and I met, it wasn't long into our relationship and she was very upfront with the fact that, you know, she was in AA and, um, but as she said, you know, from the moment we met, like we started spending quite a bit of time together and to see her commitment right away, you know, this commitment that she had, um, just in general, that's a lot of, you know, who she is, is, is that type of a commitment and to watch her, you know, doing something every single day. I don't know that I've done anything for every single day in my life. And so watching that sense of commitment for me was really powerful. And as we were moving on, you know, in our relationship and get to the point to where she met, this sponsor. And I wouldn't have known as much at that point that she was in as much pain as she was. I think we were still in, you know, bliss of meeting each other and um, building this new relationship. Um, And I just really admired that commitment that she had to what she was doing. And when she started and met this new sponsor and started meeting with her Again, it was like I, I supported 100% whatever she was going to be doing. And when she approached me with the idea, and even prior to approaching me with that, it was like we were spending so much time together and she was going to meetings every day. And it was like, I started asking, like, can I just go with you? Like, I've never been to one of these meetings before. It sounds kind of cool. Like, sounds neat to sit in a room and talk to people. And I started going with her before we met the sponsor even. And she would take me to some of the meetings that that she could. And it was just really fascinating to me. It was really cool to see all these people working together and everybody supporting one another. And that's what people are drawn to naturally. You want to see people lifting other people up. And when she approached me about this sponsor, my, my first thought was, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so... How does that work? Like, I'm all about like bettering myself and doing whatever I can, but I'm not an alcoholic. So is that going to be an issue? And it was, if I remember correctly, looking back, like it, as Rachel said, it was like, I needed to have that talk, that discussion with this sponsor. And I went over to her house and met with her. And, you know, there was a bit of digging of my background and my life. And and I was very, very clear. I am not an alcoholic. So let's just get that straight. But I'm about working these steps. Like I've, I've done a little bit of research. It sounds like another self-help book kind of thing to me. And, but I could tell from the beginning, it was the commitment, you know, here's what I expect 
you know, these are the things that you have to be able to commit to. I think one of those commitments was that I would not drink during that mm-hmm. period of time, obviously, regardless, which I agreed to. The group had already started their work. I think you guys were a few weeks in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I came into it wide-eyed and like, okay, this this is something new. It was also an opportunity for us to like spend that time together instead of apart. You know, again, just being able to be around a group of close-knit women and learning about things. And it, you know, it didn't, I, there were no super red flags for me right at the beginning. Um, it was just something that we were doing. And I think if anything, as we started that initial process, the commitments was what I struggled with because I started to really hear the, I don't care if your, your son has his very first football game that he's going to play in this week. If it's on the night of our group, you don't miss, you don't miss our group. So, and, and looking back on that, those were some of my initial things that dug their nails in for me was, and that was one of the specific ones was that, you know, my son was just starting high school. He was playing in his very first football games and I missed those games. And the way that it was turned was like Rachel said, the first thing that you put above or ahead of your sobriety is the first thing you're going to lose perspective on. And so it was just this, these little tweaks and turns about whatever you have to miss. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter how special or important it is. You didn't do it if it was on the night of this commitment. It was almost that there was an essence of fear there, of course, but that for me, it was, I mean, I pushed it. I was like, and, and the conversations that I would have about it, it was just this digging sense of um, getting in into you that you're going to lose. And she never would say you're going to lose everything. It was because that's one of the terms that a lot of people do use is you'll lose, you'll lose whatever you put in front of your sobriety, but it was you'll lose perspective on it. But it was like, well, what does that really mean? You know? So it was always turned just to be soft enough that it didn't make you go, you're to crazy. hell with this. Yeah. You're crazy. <laughs> you know? And so we just, we, we kept on with that sense. And I came in and, um, it was very much, I went through quite a long ways in through the steps and through that work of being very clear. I'm not an alcoholic. And I asked the question cause I was following the rules of well, going to meetings every single day at 6am, you know, of at 6am. Yes. So- no. daily six that no missing in addition to our weekly meeting and um what was interesting was as i asked the question of i'm not an alcoholic i'm going to meetings every day i'm going to be there i'm going to get called on everybody else may get called on says i'm Aaron and i'm an alcoholic i'm not going to lie i'm not going to say that if it's not true so it was shared with me that I could say that I'm a member. I could say nothing. I could just say my name. It was very open to the fact that, you know, and I didn't, I never felt the pressure, which I attribute that to AA as a whole. I didn't feel that pressure that I had to say it. I didn't feel that, which was wonderful, which was 
was great, which was part of something that made me stay, I think. Right. You bring up something that's such an important subtlety where it, it seems like you were able to, to push the boundary, but still within the context of needing to keep your commitment, being there at six in the morning, that you found some wiggle room and that the way she talked to you also wasn't dictatorial across the board. And so there were probably times then you would lower your defenses because she seemed reasonable or psychologically appropriate in the way she said things. Yeah, it was a push and then a pullback and a push and a pullback. Just we were able to see where she would push with Rachel in certain areas, but she wouldn't with me. She could sense that Rachel was more vulnerable and she needed to be a little more gentle with me from the beginning. Mm -hmm. With you, Erin, not having had an experience of a sponsor in the past, then you don't have a frame of reference. But for you, Rachel, you did have an experience with different sponsor or different sponsors. And so did you notice something different about her right away? Something in retrospect that maybe you thought was going to be better about her or something that was worrisome? You know, Erin's talking about her digging. I don't know. Then maybe you can tell the people who are listening what is kind of quote unquote normal. What's expected when you meet with your sponsor? Oh, that's a... That's a heavy question for a few reasons. I mean, AA, part of its whole premise, right, is this like kind of freedom to do for everybody kind of, it's not regulated in any way by anyone, anywhere. Um, And there are, there's the upside down triangle that they talk about with the AA structure, but, but nobody's monitoring how anybody does anything. And so the you can really run the gamut with what your experience is like being sponsored you can find somebody who is like read the book and call me in 30 days and we'll see if you're ready or something you know or you can find someone who's more like this last sponsor of mine was that is very involved um (laughs) involved I like that. Uh huh. And so my prior experience to to Tracy, um, my sponsor, was my very first sponsor was also a daily meeting kind of person. Um, she really recommended that I do that, and I try to stick to it as much as possible. So I already had that framework that I believe believed in, and also what I noticed is, or what I felt I noticed was that if I missed, and this is talked about a lot in AA, like if you miss a couple meetings, you feel off or you, and so that it's like this signal that everything is about to start unraveling in your life. And for me also, because of my OCD, like that was very ramped up. And so I really needed to do things just so even from the beginning, um, since 2007, so that, so that those uh, thoughts wouldn't ramp up so that, um, I could feel like I could handle things. So that that's what it was like. And then I started sponsoring other people and that too, like it's supposed to be when you start sponsoring other people, like you're magically healed is, is kind of how I think about it now, because you're giving away freely what was given to you. And And I know that I'm saying a lot of this with kind of like a tone and Erin and I have not attended AA since we left this particular group and this particular sponsorship line. So they call themselves a line. 
And I haven't felt more myself and more just like a person living as a person than I have since I left AA. I think AA is wonderful mm -hmm. and beautiful and I think it serves its purpose. But for me, I was, I was using it to treat something other than alcoholism and it went way off the rails. And I was relying on people that did not have a mental health background to treat me and it went way off the rails. And so all of that to just say that you can have a variety of experiences, good, bad, in between, helpful. My first sponsor was so helpful to me, so compassionate, but also very direct and really helped adjust some things in my thinking, you know, turn some things around that I just been really confused about. And so when I met Tracy though, uh, the, one of the first things she said, and she says this to a lot of people that we know now, is she looks you dead in the eye and she says, I can help you. I can help you. And so it's really on her. It's not AA can help you or let's read the book together. You know, I mean, you do read the book together, but I can help you. And that's what she teaches, teaches her sponsees to do when we are mm -hmm. going to sponsor people. You look at them and you say, I can help you. And that level of, con she, I would describe her as confident, like overly confident, but you wouldn't, I didn't think of her then as overly confident. I just thought she was like, had it all together and finally was someone who had found their confidence. And now I want to find my confidence too. Uh, that was a huge thing. And then the other big thing was she gave us this list of words that we were supposed to uh, not do. And I don't have them all written here, but I can remember most of them. From the get-go, you are not allowed to argue fault find, criticize, people please, gossip, gossip complain, explain. explain, defend, or be holier than thou. And this list was titled at the time when we first started, it was the nevers. Never to do those things. We were expected the, the, in, with this list, you never do these things. You can see, and you'll see as, you know, through that is, what that does by doing all of those things and by practicing all of those things. When I look back and see that first list and not doing these, those things was her first protection. It was the first area where it protected her because we couldn't, even Rachel and I, mm -hmm. when we heard no gossiping for seven years of going through this, we didn't talk about it. Her and I would not talk about our sponsor Without her being in the room, we wouldn't talk about for, I mean, literally this was the, the core of our relationship in the beginning. And, and through that time was seven years. for seven years was these nevers. And if you think about that list, it 100% protects all these things that she's doing. Right. To say, I can help you, right? It, you don't think that that's an alarming promise that no one should make to anyone else. Even a doctor will say, I'll do my best. I'll try. Let's give it a shot. You know, I think just to have the hubris to say something like that and the, yeah, it's confident, it's cocky, you know, and it's false, but I think it feels very reassuring and you can just give yourself over to that person because you want to. And it sounds like she was very convincing. 
And yes, to your point, Erin, that whole list is a way to have her have a protective shield around her, no question. So you didn't have safeguards, but she did. And then it's so interesting too, because there was a kind of redefining, I think, of certain words like gossip. So you couldn't talk about your experiences with each other, but I wouldn't have considered that gossip. I mean, that's checking in, that's getting confirmation, that's sharing, that's, you know, that's opening up. It's a lot of other things, but I guess she just needed to make sure that no two people were going to be talking about her. And then you wouldn't have someone else say, you know what, actually, yeah, I feel the same way. So no one would be kind of ganging up on her, I suppose. That was the worry. 100%. Yep. 100%. And she would say that when people filtered in and out of her sponsorship line and wake up. I mean, at the very end, I was supposed to meet with one of her sponsees that had quit on her like the day before. Um, And I had already had something scheduled to meet with him. And she told me on the phone, he's a doubter. He's a quitter. Uh, I don't care what you have to do. Don't meet with him if you have to lie. And it, it was near the end of my time. So there were all these things that were stacking up. And I was like, okay, number one, this man is amazing. And number two, you just told me to lie. Like, how does that line up with every, you know? And so it's like, it all started to crack. And also what happened, and I don't know if this was her intention or not, but then we, all the relationships in our life suffer, all of them. And we're like these robot people that don't talk about our emotions, that are just supposed to be happy all the time. We never complain. We never criticize someone else. We won't, we, someone will try and start a simple conversation and we won't even know what to say because we have this list of things we're not supposed to say. And it just like slowly erodes any like real human connection by trying to lead your life with, with that with the not being able to do those things. Yes, it's true because so much of what bonds people together is sharing how you're feeling and especially if the other person either can can then have sensitivity about it or says, yeah, me too. And you know, I'm thinking of the whole me too movement. There's a reason it's called me too, right? You want that. You want that reflection back like this happened to me too. I'm not alone here. I'm not crazy for thinking it, you know, all of it. I wonder then what would happen if someone was sort of caught doing one of these things. What would happen to you? Because I know that's where, you know, people are really often kept in line. There's, it seems like with a list like that, there's going to be a lot of behavior modification that goes along with it and kind of fear-based. So what would happen if any of you violated these rules? What was interesting is we obviously all met together in this meeting every day. So we were sharing our shares in connection with what was happening there. And then we would have our sponsorship group where we would all meet. But then the the main place where you would have these talks was in her car, one-on-one, always one-on-one. And so it would be, you would have to make an appointment and like you had to make the appointment and you had to make the appointment in a very specific way. um, And when you made that appointment, it was, we'd meet in her car after the meeting. And that was the place where it was like, if you were going to meet in the car, what always would happen is a sense of 
you would end up talking first a lot of the time. And it's almost like dig your hole first. Yep. Let's see where we could go. And what would always end up happening, which was fascinating, was if it was speaking for myself, if it was something with Rachel, if it was something with anybody else, is she would get to talk about somebody else. She would get to gossip, to dig things out. But, and I could talk about maybe Rachel. And that was the sense. It was like we could gossip and she could do it if it was digging, you know? And it was, to me, it was like finding these ways and using Rachel as an example because it happened often, but to almost pin each other against mm-hmm. one another, you know, oh, to see if Rachel's doing what she's supposed to doing. And she would do the same thing with Rachel of questioning and almost trying to get out of Rachel and see how she can manipulate Rachel to get me back in line. And so when I think of like falling out of line, things happened like she wouldn't respond to you. She wouldn't look at you. Mm -hmm. She wouldn't, um, she would be very cold with you. Um, And then when you would try and, and, and then you just immediately got into this place of, oh, like, oh God, I'm in the doghouse. And then trying to figure out how can I get back in, in her good graces, or how can I, you know, and sometimes it was one of the challenges was, um, through while we were going through the the steps process, no texting was another rule, no text, social media, no social media, no texting. So you were basically cut off of all of that. And it forced you to pick up the phone and jumping around a little bit, but part of that picking up the phone, the other rule was before you call her about something, or if you're having a problem, you have to call two people first three. and three people first and just say, how are you? We're only calling to say how they are. You still can't do any of the nevers. So yeah. if they say, how are you? You can't complain, explain, fault, fine. You can't do all these things. So we went through all this period of time of don't call her for your problems call two people first, because then hopefully you'll have a change of perspective. And usually you never get to the point where you actually call her, but it was like this sense of just ongoing awkwardness of, I've got to pick up the phone. The expectation is pick up the phone and call three people, but yet I feel like a robot and I can't even talk to somebody. How do you have a conversation when you look at this list of words and you can't do any of them? And the only person, the only person that you are allowed to really have a conversation with is her. She's the only person that you can open up to, that you can show emotion, that you can show emotion, or it's like show any of those vulnerabilities because you can't do it with anybody else. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to, but with her, it was always that manipulation of you could do it but then you always felt it later. You always felt the hook and you always talked about other people in the car with her every time. Well, and of course, you know, whatever the vulnerabilities that you shared, um, because obviously you're vulnerable if you're coming into AA desperate for help to stop drinking or mental pain or whatever it is, then at some time later, you can be guaranteed that she will use whatever that vulnerability that you shared it, it will be used against you at, at a later time. And we can certainly, as we move through the story, give you very heartbreaking examples of that. Um, but the one thing I wanted to say about your question with what would someone do if um, they 
tried to like maybe talk to someone else about like, hey, this is kind of weird. Or so I have a recent example of somebody that we helped get out of this um, line in this group just within the last year. And she did just that. She was much braver than I ever was. Um, and she met in the car with Tracy one-on-one um, and said, hey, I'm thinking about reaching out to some of the people that have left because they just kind of left and we didn't hear anything from them. And, and I would like to hear about their experience. And Tracy exploded, I mean, per this person's report, right? Um, on her and saying that she was a doubter. That was a huge thing. She always called me and my sister because I managed to wrangle my sister into this thing for three or four years. Um, we were like the biggest doubters. She'll call you a doubter. She'll call you a quitter. She'll say that it is like the biggest disgrace and sign of disrespect to who she is and what she's done for you and how much have I sacrificed for you and for your family and all my time I've given and everything that I've done for you and you're going to do this to me. You're going to go talk to someone else. Every time it was, I give up my Wednesday nights mm-hmm. and spend this time with you. And I do this and I meet with you whenever, like it was all that I did this. Now, mm-hmm. now you owe me. Well, and she would call people who didn't give back in whatever way she thought they should um, to AA as AA thieves. And she would share about that in meetings and she would just say that you're a thief. You're a thief if you don't sponsor other people um, and you're a thief if you don't keep coming to meetings and and that you were stealing uh, from AA. Incredible. And I know, I know you're about to continue, but I just wanted to say something about this technique of reciprocity. It's something that happens a lot in business and, you know, I'll give you something like here's a free sample. And so I, and we'll throw in this if you buy this and whatever else, or, you know, I'll give you my time and what, what are you going to give back to me? And it works if you're a nice person. And unfortunately the, the nicer parts of you are the ones that get taken advantage of in those kinds of situations. Cause you feel guilty and you feel responsible and you feel you owe and you feel indebted and it's all manufactured. Because everything she did was her choice. But you don't think of that way because you're too busy trying to figure out how you can be less selfish. And all of AA is based on that, right? Like the it says in, in the big book, the root of your problems is selfishness, self-centeredness. And so not only are you hearing that in this very intense way, or were, were we hearing that in this very intense way from the sponsor, but you also hear that in AA. And that's part of where I, I bristle against it now. It, it, it for me, it really, it, I found that spending too much time in AA really squashed any ability of mine to hear myself, think for myself, because there are always other people when you're sharing in these large groups. If you share anything vulnerable at all or just anything, everybody's got something to say about it, whether they say it in the context of the whole group or afterwards where they're kind of uh, undercutting what you think or what what you think you think. I don't even know how to like, it's just, you know, you, you feel something or intuitive or whatever, and they just like, like cut your knees out from underneath you, even if you're feeling pretty confident. And it creates this doubt inside where you just can't like make a decision. And then Tracy specifically tapped into that 
very, very deeply. If it, you're feeling too good, yes. then it's, you're off you, track. You're off track. You better be careful. Or if you're, you know, it was always that, like it, when you feel like I'm doing all the things I'm supposed to be doing, it was either you're off track or be careful. There's something you're not seeing. You're missing mm-hmm. something or it's, you're not doing enough. You should be doing more. You know, there was always this, this essence of you never could figure out where you're supposed to be. Yeah. She would always tell me, want to find the gray area. And now I look back on that and that's like the depressed robotic, (laughs) literally gray, like Seattle cloud area that, you know. Right. So interesting. I want to talk about her meeting with people in her car. I mean, unless you have black and windows, it's public shaming because people can see, right, that you're meeting with her. So like you're being called on the carpet and everyone will know who knows that that's what she does to people. And that's where she meets with people because they can look in the window. That's different than if I wanted, if I wanted to meet with someone privately, I would find a room, you know, where we could close the door. It really would be private, but going to a place that has windows and everyone walking by can see it's, I think it's its own form of public shaming. That's just my thought about it. And also you're a captive audience because it's much more awkward to have to like turn and open a door and climb out. You know, it's really, it's much harder to do that than just walk away. Very interesting. I mean, even in those little details, it's making me uncomfortable. I feel trapped and exposed. So I'm curious also, just before we continue, there are people who are going to be listening to this who will say, listen, AA saved my life and it's continuing to save my life. And I guess the reason that this is important to talk about is that it's not to take it away from people, but it's to warn people about what can happen if there aren't safeguards in place to keep this from happening and that the, the system itself really needs to be looked at and revamped so that there, there's more of a safety net and people to go talk to. So I think we're making that distinction. We're not saying throw it all away, but so for, for both of you, maybe to speak about that, that, you know, why it's important for you to tell your particular story here. I think the the organization as a whole and and still a lot of the people that I met within it. And that was one of the the hard parts is in when we first got in and or when I first came in and you know, you're with these people every single day, every day for one hour. I feel like there's, I mean, we spent more time with the this group of people than we did our families. And so you get close and I really, I was drawn to a lot of different people. Um, but if I was drawn to somebody that was outside of our sponsorship line, that was not good. There was always something that was like, you better watch out um, or, or something wrong with you, something wrong with me. If I am drawn, to, drawn to other people and I watched that happen, you know, over who you sat next to, if it was like, if you sat next to somebody and you like, you looked like you were talking to them or having a good time, it was like either watch out. It was just very, or if you called on them before you called on yes. her, other people in the sponsorship line, yeah, you there were, was, I was, in trouble very, so very times. much a, a controlled situation, even though you're in this, you know, small group. But right. I, I love that. I mean, I was able to go into that program, not an alcoholic and see that like, there were people here that were getting help. There was plenty of things I needed help with. And I thought, wow, like I'm allowed to be here. I shared about that multiple times. It was very important to me that 
there was that essence of being allowed to be there, being allowed to come in and get help, not feeling pressured other than the pressure around this, uh, this group. And I still have people that, that I'm, you know, close with friends with that are a part of it. I believe in that program. I believe that it is a big help for people. And I've watched a lot of people come through some really hard things and, and, you know, totally turn their lives around Mm -hmm. with it. So it's, it's absolutely not a dig in that sense, but it is that essence of when we stepped back and looked that how do we protect people from predators like this person being able to prey on people in these groups because it's happening. And if they're not, if there's not something done about it, then it will continue. I don't believe that I could have gotten sober without Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't go to treatment. I didn't, you know, anything like that. Um, I just was having some very severe consequences in my life because of my drinking. And I knew more than anything that I wanted to stop. My friend suggested AA. I went, got a sponsor, worked the steps, went to meetings, uh, did service positions. And it that especially that first year, it really did turn my life around. Going through the fourth and fifth step with my first sponsor was, she gave me ways to think about my relationships with my family that had literally never occurred to me. And they were so simple and so kind. And, um, and it, it was beautiful. Um, at the same time, it was a highly anxious period for me. I mean, I was trying to, you know, come off of these depressants that I had been imbibing almost daily and in, in large quantities for, since I was, uh, 13 years old. And so there was a lot to, for my physical body to recover from. And so I, I tried to talk to a professional about it and it just, I felt so misunderstood. And so I was like, okay, I'm just going to go full in, you know, with, with AA and keep doing this. And I've met so many wonderful, beautiful people. I still have relationships with those people. I, just feel like for my particular life, my particular condition, that it's not a match for me anymore at this time. And if it's a match for people, then I just believe in the beauty of it. There's more ways that vulnerable people are taken advantage of in AA, unfortunately, than this way. This is one way. There's women, especially, that can get tangled in with with men um, in ways that are very tragic. One thing our sponsor would always say is it's uh, where sick people go. And she was right about that. You know, it is. And so I guess the, just the word of caution, like, and don't be afraid to talk to the people that you know and trust outside of AA about what you're experiencing inside of AA. If there becomes a point where you're getting feedback from other people in your life that that doesn't add up, you may need to listen. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Rachel and to Aaron for beginning to share their story with us. It is a very, very powerful story. And what is quite incredible about it is all the twists and turns of it. And so you have just begun hearing this story. There are going to be three segments to their story. 
And this is, again, just the first. So next week and the week after, you'll get to hear them talk about what happened next, knowing also that they had to kind of keep it to the time of the podcast. And so there are probably hours and hours more to the story that you're not going to be able to have time to hear, but still, you can only imagine all the things that they went through. And that's why I'm so happy that they were able to be on the show and are able to be enjoying their lives finally now. There's something that we hear about with manipulators where they make you feel indebted to them. They make you feel you owe them. They make you feel that you have to reciprocate, that they've given something to you. And sometimes even manipulators will make you feel like you owe them for tolerating you. Those are the ones who love to put you down and make you feel less than. They induce guilt. They're usually very good at getting to know you well enough to know what buttons they can push. So they then say to you that you somehow have to mm, pay them back. And you sometimes will owe them because you disappointed them. They brought you to this place where you should be able to do things perfectly and wonderfully and have superhuman powers and with superhuman expectations. And with that kind of pressure, you will always fail and then will feel like you weren't a good enough follower or maybe you weren't listening enough or you weren't trying hard enough and you owe this person who has devoted so much time to your training and to your support. I think that what is really interesting to be able to look at is how many times I've heard in cultic groups or in manipulative and controlling relationships that the person who is controlling you will talk about how much they gave up, how much they gave up to do this work, how much they sacrifice on a regular basis, how much they show over and over again that they care at their own expense somehow. They could be spending this time with their family or they could be having a more lucrative job, but they're spending time helping you. What is always good to remember is if you asked for that help and if you demanded that they devote that time to you or make those sacrifices. And what is usually the case is the answer is no. You are not pushing them to do this. You didn't tell them to miss their sister's wedding so that they could spend time berating you to help you be a stronger and better person. Who, who would actually push someone to want to do that? But while they're victimizing you, they're coming across as the victim. They're coming across as the martyr. And then they make you feel like somehow, again, you have to be appreciative for all that they're doing and all the suffering they're going through 
somehow to help you with this thing that you either need help with or maybe you don't. And so I want it to be made very clear that in these situations, it's very hard to be clear. When you are a good person and when you have a conscience and someone says, but I, I made this for you, I'm doing this for you, and then they stand there waiting for you to give something back to them, it's always good to know, but again, hard in the moment, to realize that you actually don't owe someone anything when they're giving something to you in general. It's nice. It's a social construct. It's lovely. But there isn't a law about it. So it's always an ethical decision from the start. And it's your decision. And you don't need to feel that you have to reciprocate unless you think it's the right thing to do and it fits the situation because you feel, again, appreciative or you were helped by that person or you ask them to spend that time with you, or you push them to miss something special in their lives so that they could spend that time with you and help you, then it is appropriate and right to feel like you want to give something back. But if the person is doing something that you never really asked them to do, and the other person lets you know that this is burdensome, and that you need to pay them back. And not only do you need to pay them back, but you need to pay them back and then some. You need to feel indebted. And you need to feel thankful beyond thankful. Just because they did so much to you and they're offering you something that you can't get anywhere else, you know, that idea of scarcity. Know that all of that is a manipulation. What I see a lot, too, in abusive kinds of relationships is that sometimes someone who is abusive or controlling or manipulative, destructive, will, will expect and sometimes demand that you do things for them and reward them and pay them back for just not being awful to you that day. And I've seen it with certain couples, and I've seen it in certain cultic groups. I didn't scream at you today. I didn't hurt you today. What are you going to do for me? Isn't that a good thing? Don't I deserve a kiss? Don't I deserve something from you in return for me not being awful to you? That really is a zero-sum game. And in fact, it's more than that. The other person has negative points. They don't deserve an award at all. And you're going to be also creating more of a monster by rewarding them for not being abusive to you in that minute. You see it also with people who press other people to be physical with them. Well, I bought you dinner, so why aren't you giving me sex? There's nothing different about it. But what can also happen, which is kind of gaslighting on top of gaslighting, is that when something was not your request, first of all, you didn't demand that this person help you, 
you can lose sight of the fact that the thing that they're helping you with is something you didn't need help with at all. If somebody can convince you that you have a problem that you actually might not have, or you might have to a small degree, but they've exaggerated it to such a degree that you think you really are damaged goods, then you will feel like you really need their help to help you with something that turns out was all a fabrication. It was also just something in their manipulative imagination. And what it does not only is that it makes you feel indebted and it makes you feel guilty that you can't give back enough for this person helping you with this problem that you're being convinced you have, but it makes you more disconnected from yourself. It takes you a step farther away from you. You're going to be very confused. Just constantly feeling in someone's debt, you're going to not be sure after a while if there's really ever enough that you can do. So you'll always feel like you owe. But you don't have the time to take away where you say, do I even have this problem at all and do I need this person's help? So if you're thinking, if someone says to you, but I'm doing this for you, and if in the little thought in your head you find yourself saying, but I didn't ask you to, and I'm not sure I need this, then I implore you to listen to that thought. Because what happens then is that you are then feeling like you are needing to pay somebody to harm you further. Because the more time they spend with you and the more talking they do and the more manipulation they do, the more they're going to be making you feel even worse about yourself and more dependent on them. And you're also going to be feeling like you owe someone something for making you feel there's something wrong with you that now they need to fix. And this is why when people come out of these situations and people will say, well, can you tell me what happened that was wrong? People are not quite sure where to begin because it is so multi-layered. I never want you to be in a situation where you need to feel like you need to reciprocate and give back to a person whose intention is to disengage you from you and whose intention is to make you dependent and whose intention ultimately is to destroy you. So listen in next week and the week after to the continuation of my conversation with Rachel and with Aaron. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore Indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow.com at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.
www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.